listening to the Bookcase Podcast, a book study from the team at Case. Every other month, we choose a book that is meaningful to us, and you'll hear from education leaders across the state with fascinating perspectives about what we've read. If you want to check out the books we'll be discussing in future episodes, look at our website, www.co-case.org backslash podcasts so you can read along with us. Well, thank you for being here. I'd like to ask each of you to introduce yourselves and share your name and where you work and what your position is. So I'm Karen Broft, and I'm a retired superintendent. I recently retired from Lewis Palmer School District about a year ago. And since that time, I've been doing a little bit of leadership coaching for Mapleton Schools. I spent uh, about 30 years in education. And uh, yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Great. Natasha? I am Natasha Strayer, and I serve as the Director of Advanced Academics and Gifted Programming in Douglas County School District. I've been in Douglas County for almost 30 years now and have served in multiple roles, but enjoy um, the position I'm in right now. Enjoy. Uh, Joy Warner, I'm the principal of the Alternative High School in the Center Consolidated School District and director of the Online Academy. And I also am a coach for the alternative licensure for the San Luis Valley BOCES. Well, thank you each so much for joining us. Um, We are excited to have this conversation and dive into this book. So one of the main focuses of Brene Brown's work is vulnerability, both specific to this book, Dare to Lead, and also just her work in general. And in Dare to Lead, she talks a lot about the role of vulnerability in the workplace. That includes common stereotypes, but also why strong leaders have to be comfortable with being vulnerable and what that really looks like. So prior to reading the book, what misconceptions did each of you have about what it means to be vulnerable at work? And then what are some positive examples of vulnerability you've seen in your own district, your own school, and what's that impact been? So Karen, we'll start with you. Well, I honestly, I think page seven of her book kind of captures at the very bottom captures all of those reasons why we avoid those tough conversations. And but but the one that really sticks out for me is rather than spending a reasonable amount of time proactively acknowledging and addressing the fears and feelings, we spend an unreasonable amount of time just kind of moving forward and let's just manage it and let's just, you know, let's not acknowledge it. And For me, one of the things that I think is challenging, and I think other female leaders would agree, is from the moment we become a leader, we're we're constantly given those messages of be tough. You know, you've got to compete at at a masculine level and, you know, don't show your emotion and those kinds of things. And I just really, throughout my leadership, was never willing to give up the feminine side of that because I do think we need female leaders and male leaders that project sort of that that uh, that yin energy, if you want to call it that that different side that thinks about empathy, that thinks about 
releasing power to others and recognizing others and being vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability piece is probably one of the things that in the past was seen as a feminine response. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think now our male leaders are also embracing that idea that actually building, building vulnerability into your practice as a leader and sharing that with others and encouraging others to build vulnerability actually makes you more approachable and more successful as a leader. And, and I would say that in, in Lewis Palmer, my most recent example where I was in that role of leader, one of the things that I found very successful is when we were vulnerable, when we got together and shared those things that weren't going well and we either laughed about it or we understood each other. We sh- then that caused other people to share their own vulnerabilities and creating that culture, even in our admin meetings of, hey, this is how we learn. We learn by being vulnerable and becoming aware of where things maybe aren't going very well, openly facing that fear instead of trying to shove it under the rug and naming it, you know. In its psychology, they say, turn around and face your shadow self, and you find out the shadow is not as big of a deal as it was. So I think the more we open ourselves to vulnerability and the more we share, be okay with sharing the things that we're afraid of in safe space. Obviously, we don't want to go around talking about, oh, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. We still need to build confidence as leaders. But but so that's one of the things that stood out with in her list was that We need to confront and name the fear and then move through it. And normalize it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Natasha, what would you add to that? I thought a lot about the intersection too, as Karen mentioned, between um, feminism and vulnerability. And I have been thinking about that a lot. I think one of the misconceptions before reading this book, or even when I began my leadership journey, was exactly what Karen said, is that vulnerability was... um, was a sign of weakness. And I think, you know, as we enter as females or even as new leaders, it's often, you know, fake it till you make it, don't ever let them see you sweat kind of mantras that we were taught 20, 30 years ago. And after reading this book and being on this journey and having some collective conversation, I do think that our ability to be vulnerable opens us up for um, powerful leadership. I think when I'm thinking about a a recent example, there are so many, but one of the most recent examples that I jotted down was when you're vulnerable, you're able to acknowledge name and normalize collective fear and uncertainty. And we sure have had some experience in that over the last four or five months. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I, it, it has been definitely an opportunity to practice some of this work that we, that Brene Brown has set forth, but I do think that when we are vulnerable as leaders and we create, like Karen said, that collective container or that safe container, and we are clear that vulnerability is not full disclosure. Vulnerability is, uh, much like Brene says in um, her subsequent book, is um, strong back, soft front, wild heart. And that when you can create a container and you're creating that, that collective culture, you really are able to normalize some of the collective emotions and feelings that people are having. And that, that has been an important piece of our work, knowing that our families and communities, our teachers, our other leaders 
both in our district and across the districts are dealing with levels of collective grief, collective fear, and uncertainty has, has been important for us to work inside of. Because when you name that, and Brene talks about this later on in other chapters in the book, but it allows you to be able to get curious and to be creative. And that curiosity and, and creativity is what we absolutely need to lead through this time right now. I think that's just such a good point. I mean, if there, if ever there was a more apt time to be thinking about vulnerability and challenges to leadership and what it might look like to embrace some of those uncertainties and those human qualities that we all have, it's now. I mean, this is a wobbly time for many of us, for lack of a better word. Um, Joy, what would you add to that whole question around vulnerability? Well, I think I think you do have to be vulnerable, and I think that one of the my mantra for this uh, this time is, you know, if you're expecting perfection in this uncertain environment, you're setting us up for failure, and you're going to be terribly disappointed. To really put yourself out there and own up to the fact that you know what. I'm not perfect. This isn't perfect. And we're just going to go with it. And we're going to build it as we go. Has just been such a stress reliever. And it has, and having that conversation, particularly with the parents at this point that are bringing their kids online, has just turned the table so much and kind of built a, a collective and a community. And it's going to be okay. And honestly, I think putting that out there and letting them know that I'm just as uncertain as they are has really almost allowed us to look forward and not get stuck in a in a grind or in a rut. Before reading that book, I don't I don't know that I would have gone there. Mm-hmm. I would have tried to make everything, you know, as streamlined and as perfect and as as we possibly could have thinking that in the long haul that would have streamlined it and it didn't. It, it was much better to just own it up front, be vulnerable and say, you know, we're building this as we're going and we're going to be okay. Well, let's talk now a little bit about leadership values. Towards the middle to end of the book, Brene presents this list of values, all of which I think are so powerful. And if you're like me, you read them and went, oh yeah, that one, that one, that one. But the idea is you can only select two, is what she advises us to do. Which two do you most resonate with and why? So I'd like to pose that question to you three. What is one, um, we'll really narrow it down, what is one value from that list that you really identify with and why? And how do you really live into that on a day-to-day basis and work? I mean, how do you really actualize that and make that come alive? What does that look like? Natasha, let's start with you. It was interesting when I when I read that section of the book, I thought it was interesting that she talked about her process of taking over 10,000 people through through that value process and how hard it is to really narrow down because you feel like you're giving something up or a part of yourself to narrow values down. And I remember at the beginning of my leadership training, Peter Senge has has a process in one of his books that we we did and, and it was interesting for me to work through this in in Brene's book, and then go back to the Senge book and look to see what I had done 15 years ago. And um, it was an interesting self-reflection opportunity to see how that my values changed. What I came out of 
with this work with Brene was wholeheartedness. So for me, the wholeheartedness really encompasses some of the other values that are very important to my work, like curiosity and courage. Um, So those were the three. But if we're going to talk about wholeheartedness, for me, it goes back to what I said in the earlier question is really that strong back, soft front, wild heart. When I think about leading with wholeheartedness, it allows me to be empathetic. It allows me to stay curious. It allows me to be self-reflective. Brene has said in many podcasts over the last four months, when talking about both response to the, our global pandemic and the anti-racist work that's happening is, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. And I think that that for me is a part of wholeheartedness of being able to stay in um, tension, to be able to stay in uncertainty, to be able to be open-hearted enough to listen instead of trying to frame my next response it helps me to be reflective and responsive instead of reactive. And, and it really helps me to stay curious, which is another, another one of my, my values. Say that one more time, Natasha, that I'm not here to be right. I just think that's so great. Say that one more time, if you would. I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. So it, it, I don't need to show up with all of the answers. I don't need to show up with the way to do things or how to respond to this pandemic or quarantine or opening schools on multiple platforms. I I don't need to know all the answers about anti-racism and equity, but my job is to be open-hearted and listen so that I can continue to get it right and listen from other leaders who are doing the work. And that is just so powerful. And what a relief in a way to verbalize that and, and that idea of here to learn and here to make the right decisions and move in the right direction, not to have all the answers from the get-go and say, hey, here's how it's going to be. That's great. Joy, how about you? What's a value from the the list that really kind of stood out to you? Mine is the curiosity. And And I tell you where I come from on that is when you know better, you do better. But you can't you can't be consumed. And I think for some, it's very easy to be consumed with carrying around a lot of guilt because I didn't know. And you, you waste too much energy and time on that. You've got to move forward. I just think when you come into something with curiosity, you open yourself up and you learn a lot more. And I think you bring people along with you to learn more. That's just how I'm wired. Karen, what about you? Mine is authenticity. That's the one that just jumped out for me. And what you see is what you get. And I have never been interested in pretending to be someone I'm not. And every time I've gone after a job, I've been very honest about who I am. And I've been okay if I don't get selected because I know that they knew who I was. And that's more important to me. And likewise, I won't carry out and do something that does not feel right to me and my values. I'm pretty strong in that and I have no problem standing up for that. And that's really actually the reason why I think developing values for a leader is so important. Oftentimes, especially, you know, when I coach and evaluate uh, leaders and work with them in the various roles I've had throughout education, it's their lack of understanding of themselves that gets them in the most trouble because 
then they're trying to imitate somebody else or they're trying to please other people instead of thinking about what really matters to themselves. And they can't lead a successful organization until they know their own values and can stand by those values. I always say develop your elevator speech with your, your three top actions and what you care about. And you can fall back on that when you're trying to stand up for something. I can tell you multiple times, especially as a superintendent, where I had to fall back and say, I'm sorry, that doesn't align with my values and here's why. And I understand, board, that that's what you want to do, but here are my values and I'm going to be clear about telling you why I don't think that's the right thing to do for me and as a leader. And that ability to fall back on what you believe is so powerful because it gets you out of the, you know, pussyfoot and work your way around problems. You just say, look, these are my values. You hired me for my values. I was clear about my values when you hired me and this is who I am. And I understand if your values may have changed, but I think we can work together because I think we still have the same values from the get-go. I think it's so interesting. Each of the values you spoke about, wholeheartedness for Natasha, curiosity for Joy, and authenticity for Karen, it all just highlights that first question, the, the power of vulnerability and how vulnerability is just at the root of effective leadership. Because to really lean into each of those values there has to be some pretty strong degree of comfort being vulnerable to really live those values well and honestly. So I think it's, it's just an, an interesting way to exemplify what vulnerability looks like um, when I think you may not have been expecting that on its face. When I saw that list of values, I wasn't thinking about the tide of vulnerability necessarily, but I think for all of them um, and the three you described, certainly there's definitely that connection there. Okay, so the third question, and Joy, we'll start with you. The last section of the book is called Learning to Rise, and Brene talks there about a concept that she raised um, in a previous book for the first time, Rising Strong, and that's this idea of the story I'm telling myself. That's what she calls it. So Joy, can you explain for us what is that concept, and how do you see that play out at work? And then how can we use that idea to improve our own self-awareness as leaders? I think the current environment that we're in is just ripe for that. It's so easy to get caught up in the rut in the day-to-day and not be able to look forward. And that whole idea of creating a story and reflecting on the good things that you've done and the struggles that you've had and how that all has, you know, sent you down the road. And I particularly think about that when I work with the alternative licensure candidates and they're new. And, you know, they're just surviving day to day. You have to say, you know what, you're right here. It's okay. And you're going to get down the road. You're going to be okay. And and here are a couple things you pick up on and you do. But that whole story that you, you create and what you have to to look within, to find, and and keep you going and keep you moving forward is so, so critical. To me, the story I tell myself is every day is I want to create, I want to create more opportunities for my students when they leave the building than what they had when they came in. That's my whole mantra, my whole story. 
I can pull stories of, of students and I can pull stories of, of teachers that I've known that where we've done that. And that, that's what keeps me going. Karen, how about you? Well, first of all, I love the, what was it, ham sandwich story? Yes, yes. How many of us know exactly what that's like? You know, you, this whole thing plays out in your head and it's like ridiculously elaborate. The conspiracy theory, the everything, you know, and uh, I, I think it's human nature because we want to be able to, we want to be able to have a reason, you know, a very clear reason. Well, the reason must be you and the reason must be you thinking this and I'm thinking, anyway, I just love the way she told that because I could definitely identify many, many times, especially in our personal lives where we, we feel like we can do that, where I've done that story in my head. Uh-huh. So. I love that. I think that for me, that's kind of where my this is, isn't that interesting comes in because you can have a very emotional reaction to something and it could be, it could be based on previous things that have happened to you, or it could be based on even something all the way, you know, back to your childhood as to how you respond to something or how you feel you have to stand up for yourself or whatever it might be. But I see this play out often in the school educational environment, district office, school environment, in the story I'm telling myself is usually based on a history a person has, and oh, here they go again, you know, or so-and-so is doing this again, it's just because they X, Y, Z, and it's, for me, it's that positive presupposition, maybe, maybe this isn't at all about what they've done before, maybe that this is about something else. And maybe let's just, you know, kind of ask some questions. And, you know, one of the things I remember so clearly from my cognitive coaching training is inquiry leads to more understanding than advocacy. And so it's always good to turn it into a question. Tell me more, you know, all those things that are less likely to get your own defenses up. Because sometimes you might learn something that, oh, I was making an assumption. So, I just, I think she's so good at describing that particular response of the story. I love just that phrase, the story I'm telling myself, because we we all do it. It's human nature and there's nothing wrong with doing it. But I think she has some really solid strategies for overcoming that. And it was one of her earlier books where she talks a lot about the fact that as human beings, we are all wired for stories and we like to have an understanding about what it means, what sort of the plot is of our own lives and what's happening to us. So in the absence of that understanding, we fill in the blanks. So it's this whole idea of our own assumptions to fill in the blanks about what we think could be happening. And her point is so often they're wrong and they're worst case. Um, (laughs) And she she says towards the end of the book that when we do that, you make yourself the center of something that has nothing to do with you out of your own fear or scarcity, only to be reminded that you're not the axis on which the world turns. (laughs) That's not just one of the oldest maneuvers in history. It's our brain at work, ironically, trying to keep us safe. So that idea that we don't know what's happening and we don't know what's happening, it creates this sense of uncertainty and fear. So we create a story consciously or not about, well, Karen was quiet this morning, so clearly she's angry at me. And oh my gosh, what did I do to piss her off last week? Oh, I bet it was this. When I said it, credit, I should never have said that. 
when Karen's just thinking about her presentation in a half hour and going over it in her head. So it's this idea of saying, hey, this is the story I'm telling myself. I want to check it with you. And Brene's point is so often that worst case story, and we all tend to default, it seems like, to that worst case. That's not the deal at all. Um, so what a powerful idea of acknowledging the fact that what we're telling ourselves, that isn't necessarily the truth, or it's maybe a lie told honestly. That's our own brain at work trying to make sense of what we think might be going on. Natasha, how about you? How do you see that whole idea play out at work, in your life? What do you think are some lessons we can take away from that in terms of our own self-awareness as leaders? When Karen led off with the story about the ham foldover, I just started laughing because that, again, I think it's a universal uh, story and it's a universal response to, as as you just read, to help keep us safe um, in our own thinking. So I think the idea of, you know, this is a story I'm making up or the story I'm telling myself, I think in practice, in leadership, when people are able to verbalize that, first of all, to kind of get their frontal lobe working and be self-reflective enough to bring themselves back to that strategy or that skill to say, I'm going to open myself up enough and actually verbalize, this is the story I'm making up about this situation. A, neurologically, it takes everybody's, you know, everybody's response and defense mechanisms down. It does open up your frontal lobe to listen and think a little bit, but it takes courage to be able to put yourself out there and say that. Because I think one of my takeaways in thinking about this in practice and leadership, one, being able to have the courage to do that and create teams where that becomes the norm and it's just a skill set that you use when things get tricky or you're, you're in difficult conversations, I, I think is important to model that and it does take courage. The other thing is, is oftentimes the story that we're making up is based on, like Karen said, past experiences, but also based on our own fears or our own fears or scarcity thinking about ourselves as leaders. So I like that when Brene extrapolates on that story a little bit in the book, she comes to a place where she's really afraid about her own leadership or not being able to make it through the situation that she's in, being so overwhelmed that she's actually in a place where she's not trusting herself. And I think oftentimes the story we make up is based on our own scarcity thinking and our fears that we're not enough, can't be enough, aren't doing enough. And to be able to say that and share that story allows everybody in the situation an opportunity to get curious and be self-reflective. And it's just modeling vulnerability. It opens up a place for solution and for moving forward. Well, I feel like we could sit here and talk for hours about this book and keep parts of the book that just really jumped out to each of us. But I want to close with the final question here. And that's just a little bit more open-ended. What is an idea from the book um, that you took away as some really fresh, helpful thinking that's been something of a game changer in your own work or life? And Karen, let's start with you. Okay. So uh, it's really Uh, and I have like double stars next to it, Uh, page 28, it's sort of in the middle, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. It's the best way to do it. There's probably not a single act at work that requires more vulnerability than holding people responsible for ethics and values, especially when you're alone in it, or there's a lot of money, power, influence at stake. 
People would put you down, question your intentions, hate you, and sometimes try to discredit you in the process of protecting themselves. So if you don't do vulnerability and or you have a culture that thinks vulnerability is weakness, then it's no wonder that ethical decision-making is a problem. And the reason that sticks out to me is, you know, before we even got going, uh, Natasha was talking a little bit about, and Joy mentioned it too, the challenge of we can't do anything right during this crisis, no matter what, someone's not going to be happy. But kind of going back to that value statement, if, if we know what our values are, we're okay with being vulnerable with that disagreement and that sense. And, and believe me, I've had every piece of me attacked on social media as a superintendent. And it really was my ability to ground myself in what I knew was right for kids that allowed me to let all of that go and not know that this is ethically the right thing to do. It was also what could get me to challenge people who wanted to maybe bow down because they were afraid of a particular constituent or you know, they felt like, oh, if we don't, we won't win this if we don't let that constituent have his way. Or so it's those things that I think that's truly the mark of a leader is that willingness to stand in the rain and be pummeled. I mean, pummeled and still walk away knowing that they're doing what they need to do based on what's right for kids in, in education. So that says it all to me. Natasha, how about you? Uh, well, I'm going to read a quote too. I just think you can't. Um, Brene says her own words the best. She says, as you think about your own path to daring leadership, remember Joseph Campbell's wisdom. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Own the fear, find the cave, and write a new ending for yourself, for the people you're meant to serve and support, and for your culture. Choose courage over comfort, choose wholeheartedness over armor and choose the great adventure of being brave and afraid at the exact same time. And I think for me that, that really just encompasses back to, back to my one value, that wholeheartedness, it encompasses the idea of as a leader being able to stand in the tension and to hold, you know, multiple ideas at once and still, like Karen said, be true to what you know for us in, in education is, is right for the people that we serve. And um, being able to be both vulnerable and courageous um, and brave and stand in the arena all at the same time, I think, is the, you know, the journey of a, of a brave leader. And Joy, what about you? I really like what Karen had to say about the the whole ethics and being willing to know that you're going to go in and you're going to make some decisions. And as long as you can ethically look yourself in the face and know that you did the right decision for the right reason, and you just have to live with the fact that not everybody's going to be happy with that. And you know what? That's okay. I think the dilemmas you can get yourself in when you veer away from that is far worse than having the heat right in the moment. Absolutely. I, I just think you have to ethically do what's right for the right reason and you have to move forward. And, you know, you I, this is a free country and you're always going to have people that are going to come down on the other side of an opinion than what you have or, 
or they're going to criticize what you do. And that's just something you have to learn to live with. But as long as you can look yourself in the face in the mirror in the morning, I'm okay with it. Hearing each of your responses just makes me want to go back and reread the book. And I already have what feels like every fifth page bookmarked or post-it sticking out. So that's saying something. But thank you, each one of you, so much for taking the time to chat about the book, talk about the book with me today. And especially during what is a very crazy, stressful time, putting the pause button on for a few minutes to talk about these concepts that I think are so relevant, but particularly now. And it's interesting when we selected this as our first book, we weren't thinking about leadership in the time of the pandemic, but um, boy, does it feel especially relevant with what's going on. So Karen, Natasha, Joy, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you.